Welcome to the Nature of Mind podcast. Our mind is our most valuable asset and most dangerous possession. It can be amazingly creative or terrifyingly destructive. The Nature of Mind project invites you to learn from thinkers in psychology, neuroscience, philosophy and Buddhism. Learn more at natureofmind.net. We hope you enjoy this episode. So um, I want to say a very, very warm welcome to, to you, Ian McGilchrist, Dr. Ian McGilchrist. It's such a pleasure to have this opportunity to talk with you. Uh, so welcome to, well, I'm sitting, I'm Nyana Varcha. I'm sitting in the main shrine room of the London Buddhist Centre. And uh, I want to sort of bid you a welcome virtually to the London Buddhist Centre. It would be lovely to have you here in person. You're on the Isle of Skye, though. And uh, in a way, this... this um, uh, pandemics made an opportunity, I guess, for this sort of medium, this sort of interview. Because yeah. uh, for many years, I've been hoping to uh, be able to have a conversation with you. And um, for those of you watching at home, we're going to be doing Maitreya Bandhu uh, and myself are going to be doing two interviews. Um, we're going to be looking at um, uh, part one of the Master and his Emissary. Uh, uh, in this interview, and then Maitre Bandu will be looking at part two. So I'll be uh, asking you mainly about science and cult, uh, and philosophy, and, and then Maitre Bandu will be coming along to talk to you about uh, art and culture. And um, I just want to say what an impact this book made on me. I, I can remember when I was um, a young man about to uh, embark on, um, well, in fact, I was going up for an interview to study physics at university. And uh, in, I can remember reading C.P. Snow's Two Cultures, mm-hmm. the two cultures, that um, uh, essay, well, it was, a, it was a lecture initially, I, I think he gave it in 1959, where he laments the, the, the divide between um, uh, science and, and art and uh, the, the, the whole sort of um, fragmentation in, in, in Western thinking. Uh, and I can remember thinking, uh, I, I, I sort of, I'm, I'm going to study physics. I've applied at least to study physics, but actually, I really regret leaving behind, having to leave behind. Uh, uh, well, I wanted to study English, and um, uh, there was this real sort of pang. Anyway, I went on to study physics. Reading your book many years later, decades later, I just felt this um, uh, delight this joy, really, that uh, here was somebody, you, who had brought these two worlds together so beautifully, so intelligently and articulately in a way that um, I hadn't sort of realised was possible. Um, for me, Buddhism has been, in a way, the way that I've tried to synthesise um, uh, my yearning, longing for uh, um, uh, uh, a sort of um, proper realization understanding of what's going on uh, that, that unites different different um, uh, fields of experience but your book beautifully does that I, I know lots of people I mean your book doesn't need my recommendations it's it's been so beautifully and well reviewed but I do want to keep coming back to beautiful I felt that rereading it recently I was on a solitary retreat I felt that a thread of so it's like a golden thread of beauty. Uh, it's, it's, there's this sort of single thesis, this single argument, 
that you you sort of circle around. Actually, it's a spiral, isn't it? That you you spiral around, and the spiral yeah. gets wider and wider and more and more encompassing. Uh, uh, so you start with. I'm just going to, um, if you don't mind me uh, mm. quoting from the book, I just want to say what you say in the introduction. Uh, maybe this will help people if they've not read the book. You say, my thesis is that for us as human beings, there are two fundamentally opposed realities, two different modes of experience, that each is of ultimate importance in bringing about the recognizably human world, and that their difference is rooted in the bi-hemispheric structure of the brain. It follows that the hemispheres need to cooperate, but I believe that they are in fact involved in a sort of power struggle, and this explains many aspects of contemporary Western culture. So I want to start, um, Ian, by asking you to talk more about, um, well, one of the wonderful things about this book is that you, you argue against reductionism, against uh, a narrow materialism, which for many people, when they think that this is a book about the structure of the brain, will come as a surprise. Uh, for me, it was a delight to have uh, a scientist argue uh, uh, against materialism and reductionism. Could you say why you're not a materialist in that way? That, um, in that um, narrow way? Well, yes, I mean, it's, um, it would be easier to say, why would one ever uh, think like that, really? I mean, all my life, I, I've felt that there's... Um, it's a highly improbable idea that everything just emanates out of pointless, random um, stuff. Um, and that that sums up uh, what the world is and who we are. So it's been a lifelong thing. Um, and as you may know, I started off in the um, world of... Uh, basically, I went up to Oxford to read philosophy and theology, but I ended up actually reading uh, English. And then... Uh, later, I, of course, uh, did medicine and became a, a doctor and specialised in the sort of neuropsychiatric area. So, um, but all along, um, I, I have been um, struck that, that this is such a very reduced, not just reductionist, but actually a very reduced and very impoverished vision, hmm. uh, which is actually destructive. I think it's um, it's not only untrue, but I think it's, it's behind why we have destroyed the planet and why we're in the business of destroying society. Because we simply don't understand who we are and what the planet is. Um, and I've just finished writing a, a book which is about twice the length, I'm afraid, of The Master and His Emissary. Quite what its fate will be, I don't know. But in any case, it's, the, it's my ultimate argument about, uh, against reductionism. Um, and it, it aims to answer the question of who we are. Yeah. So it, uh, it it takes the argument very much further. Yeah. One of the things that, before we go any further, I'd like to say is that only quite recently, in perhaps the last 18 months, I have been, uh, my attention has been directed to certain um, Buddhist texts which yeah. have extraordinary uh, resonances with the myth of the master and his emissary. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, to remind you and, and for the benefit of... Um, those who are listening who may not have read my book, the, the idea that's encapsulated in the title is that of a, a wise spiritual master who 
uh, looks after a community that flourishes and grows, and he realizes that in time he can't look after everything, but he has an even more important insight, which is that he mustn't get involved with certain things if he's to maintain his all-important oversight. So he appoints his um, sort of brightest and best helper to go about on his behalf and act as a functionary, but the functionary being bright but not bright enough, believes he knows everything, which is always the sign of a fool. Uh, And he thinks, what does the master know? I know it all. And he adopts the cloak of the master, but not knowing what it is he doesn't know, uh, he and the master and the community fall to ruin. Now, uh, when I read that, and I can't remember exactly where I found it, I say I found it in Nietzsche, but when I look back, it's not really that that I found in Nietzsche. It's perhaps rather like the story of the Sorcerer's Apprentice from mm. Goethe's poem. Mm. But it, it, in The Secret of the Golden Flower, uh, there, there are texts that say exactly this, that the, what, what they call the, what I would call the left hemisphere, the analytic mind, mm. is like a violent general who commands a fierce army from a distance, but the sword must be turned around. And what they mean by the sword must be turned around is that the intellect must understand the limits to the intellect, which it only rarely ever does. But when it does, it can then restore the master, and it actually uses the term the master and and the the servant, that the left hemisphere equivalent, the, the kind of noisy analytic intellect, is a very good servant but a very poor master. Very and good. I have also found it in Rumi. I found it in um, Indian uh, texts. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's everywhere that you look in spiritual literature. So yeah. there we are. Even in an, in a very amazing North American Indian. Uh, Iroquois legend, uh, which I use in, in, the, in the book. But anyway, there we are. Well, I think what you're arguing is a wisdom perspective. And uh, you, you beautifully lay that out in, in both scientific terms and philosophical terms. Uh, uh, but, but, you know, there, there, there is, it's an old wisdom, isn't there? That, that the intellect alone will not teach us about the most important things about being human. And yet we need it. it it's, it's so intrinsic to... Uh, our, our success as human beings and survival as human beings, and yet it's, it's, it has a place. Uh, I, I wonder if you could say more about consciousness. And um, I know that uh, in the book you, 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 you say that, well, we, we don't know whether consciousness is an emergent phenomenon of the brain or whether the brain is, is mediating consciousness. And, um, and, of course, how can one be sure? Uh, but I wondered whether you... you as, as you know, uh, as it were, off the record, have an opinion. Do you, you know? Do you have a personal view as to which is more likely? I certainly do. And in the uh, this new book, which I hope will be called "The Matter with Things," mm. um, there is a chapter on matter and consciousness, oh. and I. I, as it were, come out. <laughs> um, in the first book, I sort of felt it was important not to frighten the horses, yes. you know. Um, but, in, in this, but in this book, um, I argue, um, and those who have read it um, have responded very positively to it as a, a way of, of thinking about it, that it is pretty much incoherent to imagine that consciousness somehow emanates out of matter. Uh, In fact, I adopt the view that matter is a phenomenon in consciousness, that the cosmos is conscious, Mm -hmm. and that matter is a 
if you like, a phase of consciousness. I'm using the term in the scientific sense that, you know, water has phases. In mm -hmm. one, it's hard and solid and immobile and can break your head. Uh, in another, it's flowing and transparent. In another, it is invisible. So uh, in, in this sense, I think that matter is a, an element of resistance in consciousness. And that takes me to another point, that one of the themes of the book is that resistance is very important for the coming about of anything at all. Uh, right. That it is in itself creative, that, that in a way, Creation needs an element of resistance, and matter is a way of solidifying and slowing down the movement of spirit and energy and giving it form for a while. So I see it as, I mean, after all, in a very literal way, um, I, I know that I, I only know matter because of my consciousness. There's no question about that. But we don't know that I only know consciousness because of matter. I mean, that, that is... That may be the case, or it may not. We, we don't know, but I have a very strong hunch that uh, it can't possibly just be emanating out of the brain. By the way, um, people like to talk about uh, interconnections as being the point, that somehow when you reach a certain number of interconnections, uh, billions of these, then you start to get consciousness. Um, it may interest listeners to know that the cerebellum, which is the ancient part of the brain at the base of the brain and posterior in the skull, has four times as many neurons as the cerebrum on which consciousness depends. And it has an exponentially larger number of connections, but it cannot support consciousness. Mm. Uh, and, and it's also become obvious that uh, creatures that don't have neurons have awareness, uh, plants, for example. Mm. So uh, the, the idea that um, we, we, we um, yes, the consciousness uh, emanates from matter is a non-starter for me. Oh, that's lovely to hear, really, because it's so so in line with uh, the Buddhist position, isn't it? It's so in line with uh, that, that mind is primary, that consciousness is primary. I, I personally can't see how the argument of um, billions of interconnections makes any difference. It doesn't. It's that's a numerical argument. I mean, it's a quantitative argument. <laughs> qualitatively different different uh, phenomena, aren't we? So, and, and yeah. Yeah. I wondered if you could say more about. One of the fundamental kind of um, uh, principles of Buddhism is that mind creates world, uh, that mind is primary and it creates world. And I know that you've, uh, um, well, you talk about um, the mountain, for example, uh, being seen from different uh, 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 perspectives uh, with different modes of attention and it becoming different phenomenon. I wonder if you can say more about how... You know, some people might say, okay, well, that's fair enough, but that's not a real act of creation. That's still a psychological uh, effect of the mountain changing for you. For you, uh, I, I wonder if you can say any more about how mind creates world, because I think there are, I think you're right, and I think there are, it's a very, very deep um, area. It is, um, and I'll do my best to be brief. Um, Originally, this new book was going to be called There Are No Things, which is an arresting title. Hmm. Um, but a couple of people put me off it, saying that you might be mistaken for a postmodernist for oh. whom there is no truth. Hmm. Um, and I, I want to uh, distance myself from two equally um, naive viewpoints. One, that the world just is out there and it's our business to find out the facts. And, uh, and that we don't come into it, if you like, except as passively registering it. 
and the other position, which is we sort of miraculously make it all up. So yes. um, neither of these is, is, is a response at all, corresponds to my experience. Yeah. Um, but I'm also not a sort of Barclayan idealist that believes that, you know, when nobody's looking at the moon, it disappears. Yeah. So what I, what I try to suggest is, um, perhaps I can use this metaphor, that it's a bit like a piece of music. Um, say Mozart's G minor quintet, it exists. Um, and I can't make it up in some other way. But where is it that it exists? Um, not on the, on the book that's on top of the piano, um, mm. not in Mozart's head because he's dead and when he died it made no difference mm. uh, to the existence of the quintet. But it mm. comes about every time somebody yeah. encounters it, as long as they are true to it. Yeah. So uh, you can travesty it, you can ignore it, you can ruin it, but the attempt to encounter it is an encounter with something that pre-exists, but actually only comes into being each time it is encountered. Yes. In a slightly different way, but it would be very, very odd indeed if everybody who knew it thought it was something completely different. Yes. We're all approaching the same phenomenon, but in our own way. And in doing so, we unfold some part of what is implicit in it. Yes. So I believe the whole purpose of creation, and I do believe that the cosmos has a purpose, yeah. um, not, not in a sort of uh, awful engineering God kind yeah. of way, of course not. It, yeah. It's discovering its purpose, if you like, yeah. in the process of becoming. Yeah. Uh, I, I believe that the cosmos is not a being, but is a becoming, yeah. uh, and that the divine is becoming, and that the two elements of that, the divine and the cosmos, are coming into being... Yeah. Um, through their intercourse, as it were, yes. the divine becoming more itself and knowing itself and the cosmos becoming more itself and knowing itself. So yes. um, I hope that's not incoherent, but that's my, my sense is that we add something. Now you might say, well, yes, but the cosmos is very big and okay, very, very technically your, your existence in it adds something, but it's so small that we can sort of, for purposes of argument, dismiss it. But that is to think in a very left hemisphere way, like yeah. to visualize it as a sort of um, an object or a, or, or a diagram. Whereas in fact, it's more like saying how much you love somebody if you really love them. There is no way you can quantify this. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's an experience in time, not a thing in space. And, and this is true of our encounters with the cosmos. Yes. Yes. I, I, I think there's so much in what you've just said. I think the whole um, idea of becoming, the divine as uh, a becoming rather than as a being, uh, again, for me, that feels very, very resonant with, with um, uh, Buddhism. And, um, and, and also that the cosmos has some sort of purpose and not in a simplistic as you say, not in a in a in a engineering sort of way, but in this sense of uh, form is somehow part of um, the cosmos knowing itself, uh, uh, and, and and is as important as uh, um, uh, well in Buddhism, it's emptiness, uh, uh, yeah. which which yeah. is actually not um, it's a misnomer in 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 many ways. In that emptiness is is a plenitude, it's a it's a fullness of life, of love, of of connection, yeah. Yeah. and uh, and and something very very um, uh, uh, sort of radically beautiful is is going on that we're part of and form and emptiness are both part of uh this 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 play um uh, and 
I, I, well, I, you probably go on. Well, you probably um, know Sanskrit, which I don't, but uh, I believe that the word shunyata, which is uh, what, what's translated as emptiness, yeah. um, is from a root, uh, sva, which means <clears throat> something um, with potential, like the, the, the hollow of a seed or the hollow of the womb that is giving birth. And yeah. uh, the way I think about it is that um, we crowd everything out with our knowing. Yeah. And when we talk of unknowing, it's not a kind of ignorance. It's yeah. a kind of holding back uh, in order that something should come into being. And if there's no space for it to come into being, then it's truly yeah. empty rather than full. Yeah. So that paradoxically, by making what we think of as emptiness, we are actually filling something with something valuable. And, and that's so important, that distinction between uh, unknowing and ignorance. It, there's a real... Uh, people get that so mixed up, and, and, and I've met many Buddhists that get mixed up and think that, oh, well, we must throw out ration, rational thought and, and, and reason and, and, and so forth. And, that, and that's not the whole point. The whole point is, a, is, is that there is another way of perceiving, of, of knowing, which transcends reason. But it is a transcendence, not a, not a, um, a sinking below the level of reason. That's right. And um, a great hero of mine in the Western tradition, because, of course, um, these figures are neglected in the Western tradition, so we think it only happens in the East. Hmm. But in fact, of course, there is a great mystical tradition in the West. Hmm. And one of my favorite figures is Nicholas of Cusa, often called Cusanus, who hmm. was a 15th century bishop. Um, and he made discoveries in, in physics and chemistry and optics, but he was also a fantastic philosopher. And his most famous work is called De Doctor Ignorantia, about learned ignorance. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, so I think is, uh, uh, Dogen, I, I may not pronounce the name right, the, the, the Chinese sage, said, you know, before I was enlightened, the mountains were mountains and the rivers were rivers. While I was trying to gain enlightenment, the mountains were not mountains and the rivers were not rivers. When I gained enlightenment, the mountains were mountains and the rivers were rivers. <laughs> but they weren't the same, of course. <laughs> they weren't the same. And, and that's interesting. You, you, you talk um, uh, uh, in the book um, about ascent uh, um, in a way that, you know, that we need to be able to uh, abstract and, and rise above experience in order to make sense of it. But then we also need to read to descend again and re-engage with this phenomenal world uh, in an enriched way, uh, through love, through connection, through, through uh, a, a broader, um, uh, through, through wisdom. And, and again, Buddhism has this dual kind of goal of you ascend with wisdom, or ascend in order to realize wisdom, and then you re-engage, you descend with compassion. Uh, that's the sort of twin. You have to re-engage, otherwise the wisdom doesn't mean anything. And uh, uh, you, you bring that out very, very beautifully, I think, very, very beautifully. I, I, I wondered you. if um, you could say more about the... You, you, you talk about the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere having different modes of attention. Uh, uh, and those different modes, of course, bring about different experiences, different worlds even. I wondered if you can say a little bit more about um, 
the two worlds that, that are brought about. I mean, as I, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, the left hemisphere, the world that it sort of perceives and, uh, and brings into being is a world which is of parts and things. It breaks things up into, it, it sees things as, as uh, particular, it analyzes, it's got a focused attention. It makes the implicit explicit. Uh, it is able to be detached uh, uh, but it's also the hemisphere which involves grasping. Uh, it's a utilitarian perspective. Uh, whereas the right, as I understand, it sees the whole, it sees holes and it sees holes within context. Uh, 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 it's relational, it's a broader awareness. It, and, and, and it's where, where um, values are apprehended, uh, where love, where empathy, where connection, where beauty, where creativity are uh, um, recognized. Uh, uh, would, would that be a fair? Um... Yes, yes, I think that's, that's reasonable. Um, the, the idea of relationship is very important. Um, I've come to the view that relationships are prior to the things that are related, but that might take us a, <laughs> too far away. In, in any case, the betweenness, don't you? The, what I call the betweenness, yes, um, which is not just again an empty space between things, but is the two things taken up into a new relationship, which changes the parts. If you see what I mean, um, the right hemisphere is very much able to see that, and so it sees a world in which nothing is ever finally separate from anything else. Although it's also interestingly that the hemisphere that can understand the unique case, the left hemisphere sees not unique cases, but clumps in categories. So instead of seeing sort of union, it sees abstractions that are taken out of context and stuck in a pigeonhole, whereas the right hemisphere is the one that actually understands uniqueness. And um, to give you an example, there was a woman who spent her life studying and recording the birds of her native Switzerland and um, knew them very well, and they were the passion of her life. She had a right hemisphere stroke, and after the stroke, she plaintively reported all the birds looked the same. They all fitted in the same left hemisphere category. Yeah. So it's the ability to um, see both individual unique cases and to see that they're not sundered from everything else or from the person who is... Uh, attending to them. Uh, the reason attention comes uh, as a primary thing here is that my hypothesis is that uh, all creatures um, have to solve a problem of um, eating while not being eaten. So they have to be able to get stuff and focus on it narrowly, but not to lose the picture of the whole, otherwise they won't notice a predator. Or, or their mates or whoever it is around them. And this is so difficult that every creature, every single creature that we know, right back to the most primitive neural network, 700 million years old, is asymmetrical. Hmm. And this appears to be in the service of paying these two kinds of attention. Um, and uh, one of them, therefore, is only about three degrees uh, of the scope. It's very, very narrow. That's the left hemisphere's attention. It can focus very sharply, which enables us to grab things when we've already got an idea of what we want to grab, and it controls the right hand, you know, which does the grabbing. But it's really uh, more interested in manipulating the world than in understanding it. So all the understanding of it comes from the I-thou relationship, which, as it were, the right hemisphere, to sort of put it in a nutshell, has with the world. 
Um, and it's the right hemisphere that understands. And what it understands is complex. So it's quite useful having a quick and dirty hemisphere, which is the left hemisphere. Now, there's a book you may know of by Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. It's become a bestseller. And um, people say, oh, well, I guess thinking fast is the right hemisphere and thinking slow is the left hemisphere. Absolutely not. It's the other, other way around. The the right hemisphere takes far more into consideration and is much less apt to jump to conclusions, whereas the left hemisphere uh, jumps to conclusions uh, and thinks, oh, it's one of those, before it's had a chance to find out that, wait a minute, actually, it's subtly different, and that's important. Mm -hmm. So you can't really argue with somebody who's working on their left hemisphere because they don't know what it is they don't know, like the emissary in the, in mm -hmm. the table. Mm -hmm. And yet they think they do. They, they, they think they know and it And yet all. they think they do. Yeah. And, and Whereas the right hemisphere doesn't. The right hemisphere knows that it needs its hemisphere. Yes, yes. It's got a, it's, it's got a truer perspective. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about um, why is the right hemisphere's... Why is it primary? Because you, you talk about it being ontologically primary, not just temporary. Temporary, temporally primary, but ontologically, yeah. the, as, 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 as if the right hemisphere's worldview is a, a realer, truer, uh, truer perspective. Could you say more about why is that? Why, why is that the case? Yes, it's a very interesting question. What makes humans so capable of um, exploiting the world? is that we have specialized in something that very few animals do, which is having um, a conceptual map of the world in which we can try things out <clears throat> in theory. And to cut a long story short, the left hemisphere was more concerned with perception. Hmm. Uh, it is in monkeys than it is in humans. Uh, but in humans, it has had less and less to do with actually attending to the world, perceiving it, and understanding what it is. Instead, it's like it's like a, a sort of um, administrator or a very good computer. Um, I, I resist the idea that the brain is a computer. It is not at all like a computer. But in this sense, the left hemisphere acts as our computer. We experience the world using the right hemisphere. And we send this data, as it were, to the left hemisphere, which is not really in touch with it. And it processes things very, very much faster than the experiencing hemisphere could do on its own. Um, because you can't do the two things. It's like the master and the emissary. One's got to be rooted in the real world and one's got to be doing the admin. And the computer then does this procedure and then spews out the data. But those data are no use until they're taken back by the hemisphere that understands and applied to the world. So it's a right-left to right um, process, uh, actually probably in a sense temporarily, but far more importantly ontologically, yeah. that things are grounded by the right hemisphere, then compartmentalized by the left hemisphere using a sort of map or schema. Yeah. And the trouble is nowadays we stop thinking the map is the real world, whereas the data in the map refer to a real world. We stopped inhabiting the real world. Instead, we're busy inhabiting our map or our theory. And it's got so bad now that people, people will deny obvious realities because they don't fit their theory. I mean, it, it's all around us. It's quite amazing. Yeah, yeah, no, indeed, indeed. And, and, and one of the things, in a way, 
Well, you touched on postmodernism um, uh, when we were talking earlier. Um, one of the one of the things I'd like to ask you about is is your view about values and morals, uh, and 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 the, the right hemisphere is 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 uh, the hemisphere that um, perceives value, uh, but but it's not the creator of value, is it? it you, you're not you're. Um, you are you are saying in the book that there are transcendent values. Uh, uh, yes, I, I say more about it in the current book because I have a whole chapter on values. Um, I think values like consciousness are not sort of something we give rise to; they're something we respond to. Um, that beauty is, as it were, a phenomenon that we can clock, um, and we train ourselves to do so, and it draws our attention to things and to itself in a kind of with a sort of selfless love that we enjoy these beautiful things for themselves um <clears throat> it's not quite true that the left hemisphere doesn't have a value it has two overriding values pleasure and power oh. utility and pleasure yeah. now the german philosopher max Scheler, who i very much admire um, talks a lot about values, and he, he thought of them in a pyramid at which utility and pleasure were at the bottom mm. and when, went up through things like courage, magnanimity, loyalty, mm. to goodness, beauty, and truth, and right at the very summit, thus heiliger, the holy. Mm. And it seems to me that we've inverted this and that in our world, utility and pleasure are the things that are more important than anything, and all these other things are merely... Um, secondary things that enable one either to have power or to uh, create pleasure for oneself. Um, you know, the scientist's view is that, well, religion is uh, a way of um, keeping the the, uh, the community uh, obedient. Um, beauty is a way of uh, selecting mates and so on. I mean, a, 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 a clever 12-year-old could tell you that that doesn't fit with the, <laughs> with the information that we have. But anyway, that's the way it is now thought of. So I do think that values are hugely, hugely important. And about morals, it is very definitely the case that the right hemisphere is better equipped. The left hemisphere... And this is literal. So when people have damage to the right hemisphere, they start to make purely utilitarian judgments. And, and people who are either psychopaths or have had head injuries, particularly to the right hemisphere, but sometimes just to the frontal lobes, develop the view that um, academic philosophy has of morality, which is, is a, just a utilitarian calculus. As somebody pointed out, um, it's almost, not only is it interesting that that should be the way of thinking that the people that we deem most immoral bring to bear on the world, but it is in itself an immoral way of thinking if asked to respond in a human way to a human tragedy, to start getting out your pocket calculator and adding up, well, two people there, and, but one of them's got children. You, know, you can't do it. So um, a, a neuroscientist called David Hecht at um, UCL uh, actually goes so far as to say that the left hemisphere is immoral and the right hemisphere moral. And um, I know that's a little, um, you know, quick and dirty, but he, of course he has a lot more to say about it, as do I. But broadly speaking, it is true. When people have damage, for example, dementia, mm. depending on which hemisphere is more badly affected, mm. you can pretty much predict what happens to their personality, whether they become 
um, more amenable, more pleasant, more thoughtful of others and so forth, or whether they become selfish, arrogant and uh, mm. uh, antisocial. Mm. And, and what's also interesting in your book is, that I, I want to go back to this idea of betweenness and, and relationships being primary. Uh, yeah, is, yeah. Is, is the implication there, well, you say it, is that empathy is, is um, it's not just a, 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 a better way of being, it's, um, it's, it's truer uh, when, when, we, when we relate through love, through empathy, uh, we're, we're approaching truth, uh, the way things are, uh, more so than when we're in, in the utilitarian or pleasure-seeking, grasping mode. Would you say that that's true? Um, I probably wouldn't put it in quite those words, but I know what you mean, and I think that is right. Um, <clears throat> I think there are proper limits, if you like, um, to any any emotional state, and there are uses to being able to um, suspend one's connectedness. One needs both to be able to be with and not with yeah. um, at the, the same time. Separation. You talk about separation is important yes. as well. A detachment is important yeah. as well. It, it is, and of course that's very obvious in a profession um, such as mine, or such as was my profession, um, in medicine. But it's also, I mean, you are both empathic, but you're also able not to be overwhelmed by agree, yes. the suffering of the person that you're with. Otherwise yes. you wouldn't be of any use to them. Yes, yes. Um, but I, the way I think of it is it's like a a good relationship um, in which a couple love one another. They are neither fused nor remote. Um, yeah. They are curiously more together and more fulfilled, both as individuals and yeah. as a couple, when there is, as it were, a proper distance and they're able to orbit one another rather than collide with one another or fly off into space. Um, yeah. And I think that that's an image of, of what, what, what I'm talking about in between this. Well, that puts it very well. I think that for, for, for Buddhists, there's a real danger of um, a sentimental, sentimentalization of the notion of compassion. Uh, and uh, I think that we've got to really um, work against that, uh, uh, that sort of sentimentality. It's a cheap kind of sentimentality and it leads to all sorts of problems. Uh, I think the degree of um, individuality, detachment, uh, is... is um, uh, 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 both necessary and um, uh, kinder, somehow. Um, yes, yes. It's a genuine kindness. I wanted to, um, we're, we're sort of running out of time, so I wanted to, I mean, there's so much more that I'd like to talk about. I, I, I mean, I Carry was, on, if you like. Sorry? <laughs> I, um, Carry on, if you like. Oh, well, 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 maybe I will. I wanted to ask your, when I, I, I listened to one of your lectures at, um, uh, I was there actually at the Royal College of Physicians. You were talking to uh, uh, physicians. Most of them seemed to be retired physicians. It was a daytime lecture. And um, you mentioned that death, in, in, in the medical profession, death is seen as a sort of, I don't know your exact words, but as a something gone wrong, as an aberration, uh, uh, yes. as a, you know, something, a failure, as it were. Yes. Um, I wondered if you could say more about your view of uh, death and... Uh, uh, Yes. I mean, I think we, there was wisdom 
and nothing gloomy at all about the idea that one should come to terms with death quite early in life. You know, the memento mori that monks have uh, or had. Um, and being aware that life and death are a dipole that cannot be separated. They're like the poles of a magnet. And you say, I don't like this pole and cut it off. You still still got a south pole of the magnet. You've just got a shorter magnet. And I think in, the, in modern life, we are terrified of death and try to deny it and try to postpone it unreasonably. I mean, I, I, I think I, I've seen this with some of my friends that they have um, they've really endured terrible things um, at the end of life in a, in a struggle to have another month or another whatever. And I think that a good physician and, you know, a, a, a wise patient know when the right time is to stop striving and to embrace death. Um, I, I have, I don't know whether when I'm actually finally facing death, I will think this, but I mean, I've had... <laughs> I've had a you know relatively serious brush with cancer, so I have thought about it a lot. But I mean, I I view um, life as simply a gift, and uh, I've had a you know very good gift. And every day that comes is another part of the gift. And when it doesn't come uh, again, then that that is fine. I, I don't believe that death will simply result in annihilation. I I don't think I will carry on as me exactly. But um, whatever it is that has been unfolded in my living um will will be taken up into a bigger hole so i i think we're un, unnaturally afraid of it and it would be much better if we talk more about death really yeah 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 possibly um uh, well i i wanted to ask you in a way to come you, you've sort of alluded to your beliefs and uh, I'd, I'd like to ask you about your own faith and how it's influenced your your work and your your thinking both as a scientist and as uh, somebody who's uh, um, taught English and, and uh, how has your face um, I mean it seems to me shot through the whole of the work uh, master and emissary this this uh, uh, question of faith or, or um, uh, it, that's part of the beauty of it but I, I don't know if you should say something more about uh, I think it is there for the reader who's um, willing to see it. I didn't want to be too much about it because I wanted it to be properly read and appreciated by <clears throat> scientists. Yeah. Uh, and of course, many scientists are themselves not at all um, averse to religion or spirituality, quite the opposite. But I'm afraid there are people who just go, oh, he's a faith head, you know. Um, <clears throat> well... I don't know what to say about it because I, I, in one way I am um, a sort of religious person and another I'm not. I, I don't go to any church. Um, uh, I do meditate. Um, all my life the spiritual has seemed to me very important, which is interesting because um, neither of my parents were believers and I wasn't brought up um, in a belief. Um, <laughs> but at school and in my teens... I was enormously struck by various things. The beauty of the natural world, which seemed to me not inanimate at all, but to be speaking to me mm. Mm. and my, my responding to it. Mm. And the staggering beauty of music, um, particularly uh, religious music, I mean, the, the beauty of Renaissance choral music is something that still 
it completely astonishes me every time I hear it, and poetry and so forth. So there was a lot that I was reading that, um, you know, Dunn and Herbert and people like that, these people seem to me to be wise in what they were seeing. And that the trouble comes when you pin down what you mean by God. And indeed, the word God is treacherous. It's an idol, which is why in most religions it's, um, mm. it's not spoken. <laughs> because as soon as you think you know what God refers to, you've lost God, as it were. St. Augustine said, see, comprehendis non est Deus. If you, believe, if you understand it, it's not God you've understood. <laughs> Which I imagine is probably quite um, consonant with um, trends in Buddhism. Yes, it is. Um, but uh, in any case, I, I think that the important point about that world, word is that we mustn't lose it, because it keeps a space open into which perceptions of the world that are not um, not properly placed in the current paradigm can have a home yeah. which we can visit tentatively and start to establish a, a relationship with them and a connection with them. And I believe that a life in which that process is not going on is enormously impoverished. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel very sad that there are people who, yeah. who don't have that perception. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's really all. Uh, I think the religions have their good side and their bad side. Um, we can't really do without religions, but uh, too much um, codification of beliefs or too much um, emphasis on particular details of behavior and so on are, yeah. are probably counterproductive, but I understand why they're there. Yeah, yeah. no, well, I would agree. And, and in a way, um, I want to come back to science and, and, and maybe and, and certainty and and um, um, <laughs> yeah. the, 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 you know this grasping after certainty being being part of the problem and um, I just wanted to again read a little bit from what you write uh, uh, you're, you're talking about certainty here um, towards the end of the first half of the book certainty is the greatest of all illusions. Whatever kind of fundamentalism it may underwrite, that of religion or of science, it is what the ancients meant by hubris. The only certainty, it seems to me, is that those who believe they are certainly right are certainly wrong. I just thought that was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Really wonderful. And then, and then you go on to talk, um, um, uh, you, you, you quote Max Planck, the, 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 the great physicist and um, uh, uh, one of the one of the fathers of quantum physics, and um, and you say anybody who has been seriously engaged in scientific work of any kind realizes that over the entrance to the gates of the temple of science are written the words "Ye must have faith." It is a quality which the scientist cannot dispense with. And he continued, "Science cannot solve the ultimate mystery of nature." And that is because in the last analysis, we ourselves are part of nature and therefore part of the mystery we are trying to solve. Again, again um, Max Planck, I, I feel some of the greatest, well, I, 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 physics was what I studied. So some of the greatest physicists have always been open, as you say, to uh, uncertainty, to, to faith, to, 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 um, to imagination. Yes creativity uh, and um, haven't been redu reductionist in, 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 in the way that um, 
many uh, people assume all scientists are. Uh, I wondered if you wanted to more I would love to comment on that. Yes, I mean, of course, physicists professionally <coughs> are obliged to accept uncertainty. Um, they are now. <laughs> as we know. <laughs> they are now, yes. Um, I do think that, that certainty is, is, a, is, a, is a dreadful thing. I, I, somewhere I, in an article I read, certainty is the badge of ignorance. I, I think it's a measure of how little we understand. Um, <clears throat> And it's what the left hemisphere is after all the time. It wants to pin things down so that it can grasp them. I mean, that is actually what it is designed to do for us. And so it always wants an ambiguity to be cleared up. How can this and that be true? You know, whereas, in fact, I believe often that things that we call opposites are true together, which is something that many physicists have also said. I mean, of course, famously, Niels Bohr um, <coughs> took... Um, the words um, uh, um, contrarius sunt complementa, contraries are complementary, as his motto when he was ennobled uh, by the uh, Danish king. So um, there we are. Um, I, I, the big divide now is between biologists and physicists. I, I've had numerous physicists write to me since reading The Master in His Hemisphere, saying this is fantastic because you... You've captured what it is that physics is seeing in the world. And, and I have many um, correspondents who are physicists, very many more than that are biologists. And it seems to me that biology has been left behind in a sort of terrific mid-19th century mechanical um, time warp. Um, people like Dawkins and so on, uh, bless him. I mean, they, they don't get beyond this very, very dated mechanistic view. Now, it turns out that, in fact, in the early part of the 20th century, there were many very distinguished biologists, um, including C.H. Waddington and um, uh, so forth, who, 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 um, who saw biology in a very different way. Uh, in a way that is much more like the way that physicists see the cosmos, um, and that things are um, not certain and fixed and so on, but in fact the normal state for anything that is alive is to be constantly changing in order to remain itself. Uh, that is actually a, a reflection of Heraclitus's, that he, one of his gnomic utterances is, by changing it remains the same. And in fact, the Greek word for changing there is metabalon, which is the basis of metabolism. So metabolism is the process whereby a living thing is constantly changing so as to remain the same. And it turns out that, you know, we're not in any sense the sort of tools of the genome. The genome is very inert and is a resource, rather like a store cupboard, that the cell will go to when it needs something. Now, how the cell knows it, we don't know, but it doesn't come from the genome. The impetus comes from the cell acting on the genome. So, uh, I mean, that, of course, will send um, certain people into an apoplexy, but I spend about 80 pages in the new book, unfolding that with good scientific support. Um, so uh, we need to change the way we think about the living world. We oddly now live in a world in which um, biologists, the scientists of life, believe in an inanimate cosmos, and physicists the, um, uh, who deal with apparently inanimate matter see an animate cosmos. So it's rather interesting. Yes. I, I, um, we, we'll need to wrap up. I'm aware of time, but just to... Uh, finish there, right? I, 
you know, you're talking, I, I'm reminded of um, Thomas Kuhn's, um, uh, you know, the structure of scientific revolutions and him talking about yeah. paradigm shifts needing, you know, that science advances through paradigm shifts. It seems to me that you're calling for a paradigm shift in, in uh, not just within science, but sort of of science, of what, how science conceives of itself. Uh, uh, particularly um, where there's materialism, where there's reductionism. Uh, I, I, I just want to repeat, um, well, how, how grateful I am actually for uh, your work. I feel uh, it's, it's such an important book. I'd like everybody to read it. And um, I'm so delighted that you're, you're writing, and well, you're hopefully soon going to have another book uh, published, maybe more than one book. It seems more than one volume as well. And, and personally, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, spending the time in this in this uh, in this way in this conversation. Uh, for me, it's a it's a great joy, and I hope that uh, for those people who are watching, um, uh, that you found it stimulating. For me, I could well I could carry on like this all morning, but um, I'm, I'm aware of time. So I just want to say thank you very very much. Uh, Ian, uh, uh, it's been a real delight. I hope we can carry on in some some way uh, on another occasion. It would be a, a, a real privilege for me, perhaps when your uh, next book comes out. Uh, but thank you very, very much. Well, thank you so much. I, I very much enjoyed it myself, and I'm overwhelmed by your kind words. But I would love, perhaps when the world is more normal again, to to meet you and talk to an, a live audience in London. Yeah, that would be delightful. Thank you very much, Ian. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye.